Hello, everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party and Socialist Party presidential candidate in 2020. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing to educate and advocate for the eco-socialist program that Angela Walker and I ran on in 2020. So here we are, 18 days away from what could be uh, the federal government defaulting. They estimate that on June 1st, the debt ceiling will be passed if Congress doesn't raise it. And if the government stops paying its bills as a result, we will be thrown into a severe constitutional and economic crisis. What we're under is a 1917 law that prevents the federal government for paying for expenses that Congress has already authorized if the national debt level is passed. And, you know, the Treasury sells bonds to ensure that uh, we have the money to cover that debt, to pay for those expenses, which have already been authorized. Uh, We're talking about paying Social Security benefits, the salaries of government employees. In fact, all federal expenses, including the Treasury securities themselves, which are used to raise money to cover the debt, when they come to maturity. And Treasury Securities has been the safe haven for money around the world. And if the U.S. can't back them up, uh, no investment is safe, and we're going to have economic chaos. Yet the Republican Party is playing brinkmanship on this, trying to extort massive spending cuts in the federal budget. The Republicans want to impose radical austerity, which is going to tank the economy. It'll reduce demand and businesses will close. People will lose their incomes, unemployment, you name it. So where we're at right now is uh, President Biden still wants to have a clean raise of the debt ceiling, which is reasonable. Every other country in the world does that. In fact, the only other country in the world that has a debt ceiling is Denmark, but they have a multi-party parliament, uh, and they always keep their debt ceiling way ahead of the actual nominal debt. And when you think about it, that's another reason why our two-party system is dysfunctional, because it gives one of the two parties, in this case the Republicans, the ability to blackmail the government to get what it wants, which in this case is deep cuts in, in federal spending. Now, there's a question as to whether this is even constitutional. The Section 4 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution says, quote, the validity of public debt of the United States authorized by law, in other words, Congress, shall not be questioned. Uh, So maybe that 1917 law is unconstitutional. And President Biden and uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen and apparently the administration has discussed this but they've been reluctant to to challenge uh, the Republicans on this basis. In fact, Yellen said again on Sunday that to to do that, to to say that the law is unconstitutional and we're gonna keep paying uh, the bills that we've authorized, she said it would create a constitutional crisis. Yes, it would, but guess what? We're headed for a constitutional crisis if the debt ceiling is passed and we stop paying the bills. Uh, There is a glimmer of hope. There's a public employee union, the National Association of Government Employees, is forcing the issue with a lawsuit to have the debt ceiling law declared unconstitutional. Now, the National Association of Government Employees is a small union, only 75,000 federal employees. They include the civilian employees of the Air Force, the Navy, the Defense Logistics Agency, the Environmental Protection Agency, Commerce Department, and Department of Veterans Affairs. But this little union is making a big, bold move. And if it succeeds, it's going to really change our country. The lawsuit has two arguments. One is that the death sentence law violates the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, as I just described. And the other is that the debt ceiling law uh, requires the president to make an unconstitutional power grab to determine which bills can be paid with the limited revenue that will still be coming in, thus violating constitutional separation of powers 
by usurping Congress's spending authority under the Constitution. So the law was filed in Massachusetts federal court on Monday. And it's really not clear from what I can see in the reporting. Uh, it's even got a judge yet. It depends on which judge it is, how fast it's going to move. And also whether Biden's Department of Justice is going to defend the law in court, which normally the federal government, the Department of Justice would do. So a lot of things are up in the air. But all I can say is I hope the union wins its case and we are rid of this stupid debt ceiling law. So another thing that happened this week on Thursday, well, the debt ceiling hasn't been reached yet, but what happened on Thursday was the federal COVID emergency programs were ended. And this is in a week when a thousand more people died from COVID. Uh, you know, we may want to be done with COVID, but COVID's not done with us. So what this means is the federal government will no longer provide tests, treatments, and vaccines at no charge. Pfizer and Moderna have already announced that the commercial prices of their COVID vaccines are going to be between $82 and $130 per dose, which is three to four times what the federal government was paying when it was covering these doses for us. And the moratorium on kicking people off of Medicaid during the COVID emergency is ending. And what that means, it's up to the states because each state determines uh, the eligibility requirements within their state, but as many as 18 million people could lose their health care coverage. Uh, so there's no longer any social supports for dealing with the uh, COVID emergency. And there are groups like the People's CDC and the National Nurses Union who are campaigning to keep mask mandates in hospitals and clinics where particularly vulnerable people are as well as for the kinds of public health measures that they've been advocating all along, like better ventilation in schools and workplaces. You know, if we had a universal publicly financed healthcare system or Medicare for all, it would be in the government's interest to provide preventive healthcare and public health measures in order to reduce the cost to the system of caring for people who get preventable diseases and sicknesses. But we don't have that. We have a for-profit healthcare system with public subsidies through Medicare and Medicaid for those people who can't afford healthcare. Um, and Medicare for all is not on the agenda of Biden's re-election campaign or the large majority of Democratic Party members of Congress who are running for re-election. So what? That's just another reason why we need Green Party candidates to run for these offices who will give people in this country who in the majority support Medicare for all, a way to vote for it in 2024. And then the next day, Friday, uh, the Title 42 law expired. That was the law that enabled the U.S. to summarily expel migrants without due process under the excuse of the COVID emergency. But the Biden administration plans to continue expelling uh, migrants under a new so-called transit ban rule, expel them without due process. Uh, migrants are being told to wait in Mexico or other countries uh, for their asylum and immigration applicants applications to be decided. You know, they don't get an in-person hearing. And the failure to grant due process for asylum seekers is in violation of U.S. law as well as international law. The Biden administration has already expelled uh, 2.8 million people without due process since coming to office. Now, some of these people were uh, people who came in more than one time because, you know, you hear from the right wing, you know, they're trying to spread fear and panic over immigration. But the numbers are unfounded. You know, another thing about the people, you know, trying to apply from outside, they're told to go to this phone app, which is proving to be very difficult, if not impossible, for many of the migrants that are trying to use it. So how many people are we talking about? The United Nations uh, just estimated that there are approximately 660,000 migrants currently in Mexico that want to get in, including over 200,000 Haitian and Venezuelan nationals. And then there are about 287,000 
internally displaced Mexican nationals that are also seeking immigration. So we're really talking about no more than a million people. Uh, the U.S. can easily absorb those people. We're a country of 332 million. Uh, instead of sending more National Guard troops to catch and deport migrants, the U.S. should be sending civilian staff to process migrant applications and provide uh, secure housing, employment, and education so people can uh, adjust, even if they're waiting for their applications to be processed. Instead, we're militarizing this problem. And this is a massive humanitarian crisis. You know, a million people are, are affected right now. And this is from the Biden administration, which promised to end Trump's cruel policies on immigration, but has instead continued them. So what we see is Biden pandering to the right, which is fomenting all this false fear and panic, instead of solving the problem. And, you know, this upsurge in immigration is fueled by government and organized crime violence in these countries, climate change, repression in these countries, and uh, economic crises. And a lot of these problems have been instigated by U.S. military and economic imperialism that has backed right-wing governments, including coups, and perpetuates a economic system that exploits and puts these countries deeply in debt and then demands austerity measures that remove social supports in order to get loans to cover their debt from organizations like the International Monetary Fund. Uh, what we should be advocating to deal with the long-term solution to this immigration problem is a pro-democracy and pro-socialism foreign policy that undermines authoritarian rule, doesn't give backing to these right-wing government, and has a different economic policy that ends the extreme capitalist exploitation. And, and that's, you know, the poverty is one of the driving forces, as well as the repression. Um, so we need a policy, I would say, like of open borders, like they have in the European Union and many other countries, you know, groups of countries around the world that have free movement between their countries. People should be free to move back and forth across the U.S. borders, to work, to shop, to go on vacations, have recreation, or to reside. And we actually need workers uh, certainly in the sectors that many native-born Americans don't want to work in, like uh, agriculture and construction. And we've talked about a Green New Deal, and I've you know, talked about how the bottleneck in getting this done on a fast timeline, we need to do it, is, is workers. We, it's more workers than we can put into it, particularly for the work, which most of it is in construction and factories. So, you know, we have work for these people to do that needs to be done to deal with the climate crisis. Another thing about, you know, migrants working here is many of them send remittances back to their families in the countries of origin. And that helps relieve poverty there and stimulates their economies. So that would help undermine the long-term pull of people or push of people to the United States. But instead, we have a Democratic administration that is little better than the reactionary Trump administration in dealing with this humanitarian crisis. You know, we can do better than that. And it's another reason why we need the Green Party, because I'm not hearing a progressive immigration policy coming from the Democrats, let alone the Republicans. And then the last thing I'd like to call to people's attention before we get to comments and questions is the elections in Turkey tomorrow. They're presidential and parliamentary elections. And the right-wing president, Tayyip Erdogan, is in trouble. He's slightly behind in the polls to a centrist, more secular candidate, Kamal Kalikdaroglu. And I probably pronounced that wrong, but uh, you can, you can you know, look it up in, in the news and figure out how to pronounce it. Um, the left in Turkey is not running a candidate in hopes of letting this centrist candidate defeat Erdogan, who's become a one-man, strong-man ruler in Turkey. And, you know, if this centrist candidate wins, it could start to reverse Turkey's slide into uh, real authoritarianism. Now, the left parties in Turkey have formed a 
Labor and Freedom Alliance, and they're running their candidates under the banner of the Green Left Party. And this party's been around, it's been part of this alliance before there was a, another pro-Kurdish party, the HDP, uh, which had the most candidates running and, you know, had this headed this Labor and Freedom Alliance. But they are uh, in court. They're, a lot of their leaders have been imprisoned. And, you know, I'm still here. Something happened. Um, and uh, they're about to be banned. So what happened was uh, the Freedom and Labor Alliance uh, decided to run under the banner of the Green Left Party. And uh, in recent weeks, the Erdogan's government has arrested over 150 of these Green Left activists and politicians. Uh, they're trying to rig the election. But nonetheless, the Green Left is expected to win about 100 of the 600 parliamentary seats. So if Erdogan is defeated, and the Green Left reforms as expected, Turkey's politics will take a turn for the better. One man authoritarian rule will take a real defeat. Erdogan's been in power for almost two decades. And the violent repression of the progressive Kurdish movement in Turkey itself, and the Turkey's military attacks on left-wing Kurds in Rojava, northern Syria, and Iraqi Kurdistan are likely to stop. Now, the left-wing Kurds, who are represented by the Kurdistan Workers' Party in Turkey and the Democratic Union Party in Syria, have advocated and begun to implement a democratic confederalism that's based on the ideas of the American libertarian socialist Murray Bookchin for a grassroots democracy of federated citizen assemblies with local autonomy within the national state borders of Turkey and Syria. So unlike the old, older Kurdish nationalist movement, they're not looking for a nation state of Kurdistan, they're looking for autonomy within the existing national states, and they're in Turkey, Syria, and also Iraq and Iran. Um, th this, these parties, the Kurdistan Workers' Party and the Democratic Union Party of Syria, are the most progressive forces in West Asia and the Middle East. They promote a secular, anti-sectarian, multinational, feminist, ecological, and socialist program. And they put this vision into practice in parts of uh, eastern Turkey, although they faced heavy repression there, and in Rojava or northeast Syri uh, Syria. Uh, they have a, a government called the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria. And they're trying to negotiate for their autonomy from uh, the Assad government. Right now, they're effectively the governing power in Northeast Syria. It's a federation of hundreds of local citizens' assemblies. And then the councils that they elect to govern those localities, as well as larger regional bodies, uh, require equal representation for women. And they guarantee representation for all national groups that are in any particular jurisdiction, which in uh, North and East Syria, includes not only Kurds and Arabs, but Assyrians, Turkmen, Armenians, Circassians, and Yazidis. Um, so this is a very progressive force, and it, if it is successful, it can set an example for the whole region. And if the Turkish elections can lead to peace negotiations with the Kurdish-led progressive forces in eastern Turkey and northern Syria, that will allow these grassroots democracies they're building to develop in peace, uh, the Turkish elections will be a significant step forward for multicultural democracy in the region that has been riddled, as everybody knows, by violent sectarian religious fundamentalists and ethnic nationalist chauvinisms. So, you know, keep an eye on the Turkish elections tomorrow. They're important. So with that, uh, let's see what your questions and comments are. Frankie Lee, Howie, wouldn't it be good to just let those people in and help us start a big problem building homes for all the homeless, including themselves? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But the two parties in power don't make sense. You meant the asylum seekers instead of what, just the immigrants? 
um, well, I think the immigrants as well as the asylum seekers. I mean, if people can't get asylum because they're not under immediate threat of, you know, violence, uh, but they want to immigrate and contribute, let them immigrate. And yeah, build housing. We got to build green housing. We need social uh, housing or public housing that is affordable. That's the cheapest way to provide affordable housing instead of what we're doing now, the neoliberal way of providing subsidies for private developers. And that's been a disaster. We don't have enough affordable housing. We need to do like they do in Europe where, you know, 10, 20 or 30 percent in the case of the city of Vienna, 60 percent of the housing is in the public or the cooperative sector. They operate at cost, not for profit, which lowers rents. And the private market has to compete with that. So it brings down rents across the board. Yeah, that that's part of our Green New Deal. And it's uh, it would make a lot of sense. You know, people come here, most of them, almost all of them, they're coming here to work. They want to contribute. Uh, they just want a normal life instead of, you know, having to deal with, you know, organized crime gangs and repressive governments. And uh they can make a positive contribution and we're repelling them. It's uh, it just doesn't make any sense. Here we go. Scout Trooper 164. What do you think of Trump stating? I just want everyone to stop dying. I can't help but feel conflicted hearing that. Trump doesn't care about anybody but himself. He's just pulling it out his rear end. You know, CNN should should not have platformed him like that and, and normalized him. And he did what he always does. He just spouts a fire hose of lies. And you really can't respond to it uh, unless you take a lot of time. Um, it, was, it was a terrible format, a terrible idea. And when he, he says he can end the war in Ukraine in a day, <laughs> I heard a Ukrainian say the other day, yeah, actually Trump could do it. He could declare he's not running for president. And then Putin would say, uh-oh, uh, I don't have any support in the U.S. and this war is not going good for me, so I quit. You know, I don't know if that's actually what would happen, but that's the way the Ukrainians look at, at Trump. They think he's... A dangerous man, which I think most of us do as well. <clears throat> Scout Trooper 164, what are your thoughts on Feinstein's declining health? It is still allowed to run in office. I think you mean stay in office because she said she's not running for re-election. I'm rather concerned. Yeah, I mean, come on. You've been there for a long time. Your health is in decline. You know, just go home and retire and enjoy the rest of your life instead of holding things up, of missing votes where your vote is needed. And, you know, what's happening? There is an election coming up for this seat. Uh, I guess the governor of California would appoint a Democrat because the governor of California is a Democrat to fill in for Feinstein in the meantime. You know, I mean, let it go, Feinstein. You know, it's 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 uh, it's not helping you, and it's certainly hurting the rest of us. Via email, have you been following the fighting in Sudan? Yeah, I haven't been following the the military conflict, but. Um, you know, I'm very concerned. I mean, what happened here is that there was a revolution in 2019 that overthrow, overthrew uh, the former dictator. And uh, there was a coalition between the civic forces that uh, forced the ouster of this dictator and the military, which has always played a big role. And there was supposed to be a two-year transition period to civilian government. But then last year, the military held a coup and kicked out the civilian side. And so what you have now is a fight between two factions of the military. One faction is the uh, RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, 
which grew out of the Janjaweed uh, militias that uh, wreaked such havoc and genocide in Darfur, uh, you know, a number of years ago. And they were supposed to be integrated into the regular armed forces, but their leader wants power and he wants to take it from the leader of the armed forces. And unfortunately, the U.S. tried to negotiate with these militarists instead of really, you know, insisting that the civilians be brought back into the government. So I think, you know, our diplomacy was not smart and has contributed to the situation we're in right now. Um, I don't have an easy solution to this. I think we need to, you know, be in solidarity with the civic forces that uh, are, you know, for a democracy and a secular uh, government. And, uh, you know, you know, we need to be listening to what they're asking for. Right now it's humanitarian aid and enabling people to get away from the fighting, but also they want uh, diplomatic support so they can be part of the solution instead of sidelined by these fighting military factions. But that's not going to be easy. I, I just, you know, I don't know what else we can do at this point. It's a, it's a tragedy and it's, it's going to be, uh, I think, bloody and going to take a while to sort itself out. And then one of the military factions either takes power or maybe they come up with some joint agreement to rule and the people will be left out. They'll be under a military dictatorship. Um, and they'll continue to resist. And uh, they're actually pretty well organized. They have unions. The Communist Party in Sudan is uh, one of the few in the world that is, you know, very pro-democracy and uh, well organized and played a, a, a positive role in that revolution. Uh, and then there are other civic organizations as well. Um, and we've got to just, you know, listen to what they're saying and, and what they're asking of us in solidarity. Scout Trooper 164. Oh, and Kamala apparently is in charge of artificial intelligence regulation. What do you think of this? I'm personally unsure since I think the key to balance is moderation. Um, yeah, I, I really need to educate myself more on artificial intelligence and the proposals for regulating it. I, I just haven't done that yet. Um, you know, I'm concerned on the one hand that there'll be censorship, but on the other hand, that uh, artificial intelligence will create all kinds of problems on its own, whether it's in the economy or, uh, you know, uh, fake news or fake, uh, what do they call them, fake videos that uh, we can expect to see in this upcoming election. Um, so that I know it's a big issue. I'm just not... Uh, up to speed like where I want to be on that question. Via email, thoughts on the charges against Representative Santos? Uh, well, he looks guilty as hell to me. I mean, there's been so much reporting on that. And, uh, you know, my question is, uh, why do the Republicans uh, allow him to operate as a normal member of the House, given all that he's under. Um, but the Republicans don't make sense anyway. So, you know, Santos is kind of symbolic of who they are. You know, the charges are serious, you know, money laundering, fraud, you know, all his crazy lies. You know, that's like Trump, but but this uh, these other charges, you know, one of the things just to talk about Trump is I don't think the feds have ever gone after Trump's money laundering. It's pretty clear from lots of reporting that he was getting particularly Russian money uh, who bought his real estate in order to resell it and launder uh, their ill-gotten gains. And Trump was probably well aware of that. In fact, probably encouraged it because that was a source of revenues for him. And, uh, you know, these same rich folks from Russia were also investing in, in some of his real estate projects. 
as uh, the younger Trump, Trump Jr. said, you know, maybe late 2000, 2000 aughts, uh, we get most of our money from Russia. Yet uh, Rod Rosenstein instructed Robert Mueller in the Trump-Russia investigation to not follow the money, and Mueller didn't. Uh, Merrick Garland's uh, Justice Department apparently isn't investigating that either. Um, so, you know, the small fish like Span Santos gets charged with money laundering, but the big fish like Trump, uh, apparently so far, you know, he's been charged with some uh, tax insurance and bank fraud. Um, but the money laundering, you know, just seems to, no prosecutors have really zeroed in on that. And it's, you know, I think an indictment of our criminal justice system. You know, these big guys, all kinds of corporate crime. And they just, you know, Trump's been doing it his whole life. And uh, he's, he's about to, you know, have his comeuppance, I think, in New York on uh, this corporate crime, the, the bank and insurance and uh, tax fraud. Um, but that's, I'm trying to remember, that's civil or criminal. I think that's just civil. And the Manhattan DA was looking at criminal charges, but dropped them and instead went after the, uh, the Stormy Daniels payments, um, which seemed to be an obvious case because he was an unnamed, unindicted co-conspirator with Michael Cohen, who did serve time for that violation of federal election law. And uh, so anyway, I guess my thoughts on the charges against Santos is, you know, why isn't Trump facing similar charges? Vicki Corden, I'm concerned about Biden running again in 2024 against Trump or DeSantis. And some of the polls favor the bullies more than Biden. Very concerning. Yeah, it is very concerning. I think from my perspective is, you know, Biden is trying to uh, compete with these bullies for the vote in the middle. In other words, he's moving to the right, which is going to demotivate his strongest base, which is black voters, working class voters, people of color, women, um, who, if Biden keeps moving to the right, are going to like shrug and throw up their hands and say, you know, I mean, with friends like that, who needs enemies? Of course, Trump or DeSantis would be worse, but, you know, Biden should be running on a progressive program. I think he could landslide the Republicans. You look at the hardcore support for these racist authoritarian Republicans, at best it's 30 percent. And then the rest of that vote are, you know, call them the country club Republicans, who will vote for the Republicans because they'll keep taxes low and social spending low. I mean, they're just, you know, conservatives, but they're not fans of Trump's, you know, lunacy or DeSantis's social conservatism. So that gives the Republicans more votes. But, uh, you know, I think Biden could, you know, landslide, you know, any Republican. The numbers are there. I mean, compare where we are now uh, to where we were in 1968. If you add together the Nixon and Wallace votes, which was a racist vote, Nixon was running all kinds of racist dog whistles and uh, barely beat Humphrey. But if you add in the Wallace vote, it was nearly 60% were for these right-wing politics. And now the core is about 30%. I mean, we've made progress. And the fact that the Democrats can't capitalize on that is because they're listening more to their rich donors instead of their voters. And so it is very concerning. And um, all I know is that, you know, the Greens need to put up a good candidate and give people the opportunity to vote for a progressive program. It's not a vote for Trump or DeSantis, it's a vote for the Green. It doesn't go in a Trump or DeSantis column, it goes in the Green column. Now people say, well, it should go in the Biden column, but most of our voters don't wanna vote for either parties. We know from the 2016 exit poll that 61% of Jill Stein's voters would have stayed home if she wasn't on the ballot. So, you know, we are bringing new voters to the polls and the more votes we get, for Medicare for All, for the Green New Deal, for student debt relief, for all these progressive policies that the people want, uh, the stronger our position will be after the election. It will send a message to those who are elected 
and we'll, you know, build our movement because people will realize they're not alone and they don't have to settle for a neoliberal Democrat to stop a neo-fascist Republican. They can vote for a positive program, the kind of program we need given the life or death issues we face of climate change and the new nuclear arms race and inequality which kills and an electoral system that excludes most of us. You know, the single-member district winner-take-all system imposes a spoiler effect that forces progressive-minded people to vote for centrists, like the Democrats, to stop the far-right Republicans. They don't get to vote for what they want. And uh, it excludes the progressives from having an independent voice in government. If we had a system of proportional representation in Congress, I think within two or three elections, the progressives would have, you know, uh, a good 30%, at least a third of the of the representatives, uh, which would make them a co-equal power with the centrists and the right. It would totally change our politics. So that's another thing I've been coming back to since the, I ran in 2020. We've got to change the electoral system. We need ranked choice voting for executive offices and proportional ranked choice voting for our legislative bodies. That'll be the game changer. It will, it will change our politics. And you don't hear that from the Democrats or Republicans, particularly at the federal level. You know, where's the Democratic proposal to replace the Electoral College with a national popular ranked choice vote? There isn't even a bill in Congress for that. There is a bill for, you know, replacing the Electoral College with a popular vote, uh, but it hardly has any sponsors. It's just, you know, it's not a serious bill. There's not a serious effort. So again, that's why we need the Green Party. If, if we don't run our own people and lift our voices up, uh, nobody's gonna hear about pro-democracy electoral reforms or Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, and the climate crisis and the new nuclear arms race, US imperialism, the inequality crisis. And when I say inequality kills, I mean, uh, life expectancies are declining in this country, even though we're a rich country the more inequality grows because people have to choose between going to the doctor, paying the rent or the utility bill. Um, a lot of people are homeless. Rents are too damn high. And uh, you're on the street. A lot of people, uh, that's where they end up. They die on the street. So we need, we need a new politics. And it, it can't be, you know, like some of the progressive Democrats do. They're trying to be you know, trying to reform the Democratic Party. That's not going to work because they don't have any real power in it. The, the power in the Democratic Party is the money of the rich and the corporate entities that finance their campaigns and their national committees, which then uh, determine which candidates they're going to support in primaries, um, the think tanks that are associated with the Democratic Party, the lobbying groups. That's the real power structure of the Democratic Party. And progressives, rank-and-file Democrats, they're not part of that power structure. Uh, at best, or at worst, in any case, the progressives, you know, they speak out for the right things in a lot of cases, but they make the Democrats look better than they really are. As uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said when she was still supporting Bernie Sanders in the primaries, if uh, I was in another country, I would not be in the same party with Joe Biden. Well, she shouldn't be. She should be an advocate for ranked choice voting and proportional representation. But she's silent on those issues. You know, that's why we need the Green Party. Amy L. Sachs, looking forward to seeing who the new Sanders will be who will once again bait and switch gullible lefties into supporting Ora Dems. You know, at this point, the left in the Democratic Party isn't even doing a bait and switch thing. They are just saying, we're all with Biden from Bernie Sanders on down. I mean, there are a few uh, candidates that so far on the margins will probably stay there, like uh, Marianne Williamson and uh, Robert Kennedy uh, Jr. Uh, who, you know, is hardly a progressive when it comes to questions like vaccines, public health, uh, his association with, you know, right-wingers like um, 
Roger Stone and, and General Flynn um, going to these, uh, you know, right-wing confabs that General Flynn has organized to promote his anti-vax book. Um, and then he's just off the wall. He said on Twitter last week that, uh, and I think I mentioned this last week on the podcast, I couldn't remember exactly what he said, but he said uh, Ukraine has nuclear weapons launchers all along the border with Russia, which Ukraine doesn't. He may have been thinking of the anti-ballistic missile sites in Romania and Poland, which shouldn't be there in my opinion, could be transferred to launch nuclear weapons. Right now they're, uh, they have anti-ballistic missiles there. Um, but those are not in Ukraine. And for him, proposing to be a serious candidate, to spout you know, BS like that on Twitter, you know, totally disqualifies him in my mind besides his anti-vax craziness. So anyway, I think the problem is it's, it's not even bait and switch now. It's just they already done switched. All the uh, progressives in the Democratic Party are backing Biden. They're not, not going to contest him, which means Biden's free to move to the right. Uh, and, you know, the problem with that is Biden is normalizing these neo-fascist Republicans. He still says he wants to do bipartisanship with the party that tried to overthrow his election. And it normalizes them. We should be, uh, our mindset should be to defeat them decisively so they can crawl back under their rocks and uh, realize they're a permanent minority of the American electorate and they're shrinking. You know, that should be our objective, not, you know, like Biden, you know, say he's going to save our souls by, you know, having us all get along. The Republicans don't want to get along. They just want power by any means necessary, even though they know they're a minority. So I keep going back to the same thing. We need a, you know, a Green Party, a Socialist Party, a strong independent left in this country that won't settle for this neoliberal accommodation of the neo-fascists. Violated content OT. The media has everything all wrapped up. If they won't platform Marianne, Marianne Williamson or uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., they won't platform a green candidate either. Yes? Yeah, we won't get uh, fair treatment in the corporate media, uh, but we do have, you know, our own uh, universe of, you know, in the last three presidential elections, the Greens have been between 400,000 and a million and a half votes. And those folks want an alternative. And they want to, you know, they want to, you know, have something they can do, something to rally around. Um, so we can reach those people by social media in particular. Um, and then they can reach out from their, you know, local organizations, their local party chapters, their local campaign organizations to reach ordinary people and build this base of, you know, let's say it's a million people who want a left alternative, despite, you know, the spoiler problem in the general election, uh, to build out that base. So, you know, the media is a problem, but it's not an insurmountable obstacle to us advancing in the 2024 elections. Scout Trooper 164, are you in support of the Writers Guild strike? Yeah. Um, and I, you know, wish them uh, a victory in getting a contract that addresses their concerns. Scout Trooper 164, how do you feel with MSNBC bragging about no debates in the Dem primary? really goes to show you how atrocious things are. I didn't know they were bragging about no debates, but if they are, shame on them. Um, yeah, I guess there, that's a way of marginalizing even uh, token opposition from Kennedy and Williamson. And then Trump says he doesn't want a presidential debate. We may have no debates, um, although I'll debate anybody in a proper format, if I'm running. I haven't decided that yet, but 
uh, you know, that's just a loss to uh, the people and to the democratic process. Uh, the idea that, uh, you know, we go get to see candidates, you know, up against each other, answering questions, uh, and giving their views on issues is just, uh, it makes a, a, a mockery of democracy. Scout Trooper 164, do you agree that better mental health could reduce shootings as Sagar and Jetty suggested? I believe in it since the way to handle gun control isn't doing very well. Well, um, most of our killings are not by people with mental health issues. Some of the mass killings are for sure, uh, but there's more people being killed by gunfire uh, in domestic disputes, in uh, street gang uh, disputes, um, and then just people, because they have a handgun handy, get in a, a confrontation or an argument and they pull out their gun. So, you know, I, you know, have supported the, you know, idea that the Second Amendment can't support individual gun rights as well as uh, um giving the public the right to regulate guns in the interest of public safety. And I think we need a lot more uh, gun control or gun safety regulation because, I mean, we still don't even have universal background checks. We still have a lack of prosecution for uh, gun dealers and manufacturers producing things that are illegal. I mean, now we got a lawsuit here in New York that white supremacists that killed 10 black people at a Topps supermarket in Buffalo, he got from the gun uh, seller uh, an adaption to his uh, weapon that made it automatic that was illegal in the state. And uh, he was called on it, the gun dealer was called on it. So they said, well, we're, they're not gonna sell it in New York anymore. But the attorney general of New York, uh, one of the investigators was able to buy through that gun dealer just that modification. So they were lying, they were breaking the law, and now they're under, uh, I think, indictment. The indictment has come forward, at least investigation. Maybe it's gone to the grand jury. I can't that it, remember exactly what stage it's at, but the state attorney general is going after that in New York. Um, so I think there's a lot. Now, mental health, obviously, uh, we should be dealing with mental health. Um, and that's why we need a universal publicly financed health care system. So the people like this young man in, in New York that was strangled to death on the subway was having an episode. He was homeless. He was saying, I don't mind if I die today. I'm hungry. And, uh, you know, was harassing passengers and was having mental health problems. He'd been treated in hospital, but then released without treatment, any, without any follow-up. I mean, that's not treating mental health. Um, so, yeah, better mental health, uh, you know, treatment and, and coverage uh, would probably reduce shootings. But I think it's much bigger than just uh, mental health. It's easy access to guns by people, uh, a lot of whom shouldn't have it. Uh, there should be much more training, uh, safety requirements for when you have guns, like safety locks and so forth. So... I think mental health is part of it, but it's just a small part of it. Scout Trooper 164, what do you think about Trump being found guilty of sexual assault? He wasn't convicted of rape, but that is still a major serious charge. Yeah, it is. I mean, there were 10 counts. He got found guilty on uh, nine of them, and... The damages, I think, were, you know, from all those counts is around $5 million. Um, yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a felon, and he's now convicted. Now he's going to appeal and try to drag it out, as he always does. Um, but, you know, the, the problem is his supporters don't care. In fact, a lot of them probably don't know he, he has this conviction. Um, they just 
blindly follow Trump without really knowing what's going on. Uh, and that happens when, you know, people interview Trump supporters at Trump rallies or, uh, and, you know, they're asked very basic factual questions about uh, Trump and what he's done. And uh, people don't know. It's, uh, you know, what's the phrase? Uh, oh, education is expensive, but uh, being uneducated is more expensive. That's not quite the, the phrase, but, you know, it costs more when people are ignorant. And uh, it's a problem. So Trump's got more things to face, election fraud in Georgia, um, mishandling classified documents in Washington, and these uh, fraud cases in New York. So he's running for office to raise money to pay his legal fees as much as anything else. And, you know, there are a lot of suckers that are going to keep feeding you know, his personal agenda, unfortunately. Andrew Hager, about a universal health care system plan, how will it affect our economy and taxes? Well, the, uh, the studies that show how it could be financed by progressive taxation show basically over 95% of us will pay less in taxes plus insurance premiums, which is what we now pay for health care. Uh, so it's going to be positive for most of us in terms of our personal budgets. And in terms of the economy, uh, when people are healthy, they're on the job more, you know, they're more productive. Um, and actually, uh, because we're, we're preventing more illness than we're uh, treating with a universal system, uh, health care expenses are likely to go down. And that's good for the economy. We can devote those resources to other needs, like, you know, addressing, you know, rebuilding our economy around clean energy to address the climate crisis. Um, or providing homes for the homeless that they can afford. Uh, there's so much we could do. So it'll have a positive effect on the economy and on taxes. Uh, with the money we now spend for both private insurance and, and public insurance programs, we can provide universal coverage, cover all medically necessary services, including dental, eye coverage, hearing, things that Medicare doesn't cover, for example, um, long-term care, which is very expensive, um, and then treatments for you know all the diseases and illnesses. Uh, we can do that with the money we're spending now. It won't cost the economy more to provide a universal publicly financed healthcare system. In fact, it'll probably cost us less in terms of overall spending in the economy. The U.S. spends more than twice as much as any other country uh, that does provide universal healthcare on our healthcare system, and we get lower outcomes. So it's... Uh, it's a no-brainer to have that kind of system. The only stopping it is the insurance companies and their power in the electoral system, which is privately financed and excludes progressives like us through this winner-take-all single-member district system where the spoilers effect is so strong. And people are reluctant to vote for us because they're so afraid of the Republicans. Scout Trooper 164. Sagar and Jetty made a video a few days ago saying Americans feel like 50 years ago was better. Do you agree or disagree? Well, 50 years ago would be what? 1973? Uh, yeah, that was right before or right when that uh, hard recession hit. And that's when... Uh, that memo that was written by Lewis Powell, who became a Supreme Court justice, it was saying, uh, you know, we're too damn democratic in this country. You know, black people, women have a voice, environmentalists are getting power. We got these new regulations, you know, like the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, 
Environmental Protection Agency, the Occupational Safe, Safety and Health Administration. I mean, so Lewis Powell's memo said, it was written to the Chamber of Commerce, we got to organize, meaning we being the capitalists. And out of that period, you got the Business Roundtable and the Chamber of Commerce became much more of a lobby. Um, and they began pushing what we now call neoliberalism. You know, privatization, deregulation, uh, cuts to social programs. And so for, you know, working people, uh, it was better uh, in the 60s and early 70s. Um, but on the other hand, uh, social attitudes, uh, you know, racial tolerance and gender equality uh, was much worse than it is today. Uh, you know, the country is much more liberal on uh, questions of social equality, equality for ethnic minorities, for women, for LGBTQ people. Uh, we're much better off, um, even though it's still a struggle. So I didn't see the video. I, I don't know what he was emphasizing. Um, but I think, you know, in some ways we're better off, in some ways we're not. Because right now for working class people, life is a struggle. Uh, people are just a paycheck away from poverty, many, many people. The AP was doing studies a few years ago, something like 60% of Americans uh, have periods when they're in poverty uh, over the course of a year or so uh, because, you know, they lose a paycheck, they get sick, um, they can't pay bills, and they're in a, you know, precarious situation. So I think it's mixed. We've advanced in some ways, but on the economic class issues, we've gone backwards. And in terms of militarism, uh, you know, 1973 was, you know, the high point of the anti-Vietnam War movement. That was when the Paris Peace Agreement was signed and the U.S. began to withdraw. Uh, and it was hard for uh, the president to get us into wars. It really, they called it the Vietnam Syndrome. What was done, like by Carter in Afghanistan, before the Russians even got in, was covert action. Same thing in Latin America. Um, and, you know, Reagan tried to break that with invasions of, uh, of Grenada, you know, a tiny country in the Caribbean, which had a revolution. Um, and then George H.W. Bush, you know, invaded Panama, and really where he claimed to have broken the Vietnam syndrome was the Gulf War, um, where we pushed Iraq out of uh, Kuwait, where it shouldn't have been, but it was already withdrawing. Uh, and we went ahead and just slaughtered the Iraqis as they were retreating and bombed a lot of you know infrastructure in Iraq and then imposed sanctions in a no-fly zone, which then under the Clinton administration led to lots of deaths you know, the uh, State Department, head of the State Department, State Department Secretary, uh, um, you know, name's on the tip of my tongue. She was asked by 60 Minutes, you know, is 50, 000, the death of 50,000 children in Iraq due to the sanctions worth it? And she said, yes. I mean, that's the kind of vicious imperialism uh, that has been restored since Vietnam. And you know, that's a real problem. So that's another area where uh, we're probably worse off than we were 50 years ago. We still had ahead of us 50 years ago the nuclear arms agreements. Uh, the first uh, START agreement, Strategic Arms Limitation, SALT agreement uh, that Nixon did with uh, Russia. Uh, that, I can't remember the year of that, but that was happening. The ABM Treaty was in that period. The Non-Proliferation Treaty was in that period. Uh, and then we got up to Reagan and Gorbachev agreeing on the uh, major reductions in nuclear arms. I mean, so things got better you know, on the nuclear arms front, and then since then they've got worse. And we're back into a new nuclear arms race. And crazy talk from, you know, Putin and uh, Medvedev and other, you know, uh, Russian nationalists about, you know, how we're going to, Russia's going to nuke uh, or use nukes to beat back 
what they call the Anglo-American uh, imperialists, even though they're, they're invading the Ukrainians. So we're in, you know, that I think we've, we're in a much worse position. That's why the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists move, has kept moving their clock closer to midnight, their doomsday clock. And they just moved it again uh, last year because of the Russian invasion. Uh, so I think it's a mixed bag. We're better off in some ways and worse off in others. Andrew Hager. I don't know about you guys, but I'm sick and tired of the way the media is handling the truth about, well, everything, really. Even if BBC News is the closest thing to the whole truth. Yeah, when I'm in the car or I turn on cable, I usually look at BBC. For one thing, they actually cover news around the world. You know, MSNBC, Fox, and uh, CNN rarely cover international news. CNN probably more than the others, but uh, not so much. And, and it's very superficial. There was a poll back during the, uh, when was it, the, the, the second Iraq war that Bush started. And it found that the more people watch CNN, the less they knew about the real facts of the war in Iraq. Um, so yeah, the media is a big problem. Um, one thing we need is a media policy. We need uh, more uh, independent public news media where uh, the government funds it but doesn't control it. And one way to do that is have the boards uh, made up of people by sortition. In other words, not election, not appointment, but like a jury. And you pull people out of a pool. They have to be willing to serve. And you get a cross-section of the American public, and they – then are independent of the government, and then it can fund uh, public media, not just you know PBS and NPR, but local media. You know, local newspapers are, are disappearing fast. Uh, they could be publicly subsidized, independent, and governed by these uh, you know nonpartisan uh, boards selected by a random sample of the public. I think that's the way we need to move. So we have journalists who can do their job uh, without being uh, circumscribed by the corporate interests of, you know, big media companies that run, you know, Comcast runs MSNBC, uh, Murdoch's Empire runs Fox News, CNN is, uh, I'm not sure who owns it right now, but I know the reporting I've seen recently is they are uh, moving to the right. Uh, I'm not sure what their rationale is, but that's what they're doing. So, yeah, media is a, a big issue, and we need a serious policy. And, again, we're not hearing anything from Biden or Congress that's serious about addressing that. Okay, well, I thank people for being here today. Our hour is up. Uh, next weekend, next week, yeah, next weekend I will be at the uh, conference in Montreal. It's about the great transition, meaning the transition to a sustainable economy put on by uh, historical materialism. So it's a left-wing conference. And uh, when it comes time to have this podcast, I expect to have uh, grabbed somebody at that conference who will be the guest. Uh, one of the people there at that conference will be Yulia Yurchenko, who was on this podcast. She's a Ukrainian socialist. She's speaking at the conference. But there are other people um, talking about independent politics, um, the, the global economy, and, and uh, what imperialism is, um, you know, is going from uh, a world where U.S. imperialism is dominant to a multipolar world? Is that a multi-imperialist world? Are we back to the pre-World War I situation where different imperialist powers are competing? Uh, others argue that a multipolar world will open the door to socialism. 
I don't see that. I see, you know, what we got is multiple imperialisms. We're already in that world. And what we need is uh, socialist transformation across the world. Um, but anyway, that's a discussion. Maybe we'll have it next Saturday uh, with one of the guests I can grab at this conference, or uh, we should have it down the road. I have some people in mind for that. So um, stay tuned and have a good week. And uh, we'll see you next, next week.